We just talked about how the urban-rural divide may be exaggerated or misleading. But in one respect, it's all too real. These days, it maps directly onto one of the longest-running fault lines in America, between Republicans and Democrats. Just look at an electoral map from the 2016 election. It shows a sea of red rural voters, punctuated by small islands of blue voters. They represent voters in America's metropolitan areas. Many liberal commentators, including MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell, have complained about the unfairness of the Electoral College. Making those rural votes 20 times more powerful than urban votes. Yeah, and there's another thing, something that's used by both political parties, that can tilt the scales in favor of white rural voters. That's gerrymandering. That's when political parties carve electoral districts that favor their own party at the expense of the others. So you have the Electoral College and gerrymandering. Those are well-recognized features of our electoral system. But 50 years ago, rural voters enjoyed a political advantage over urban voters for another reason, malapportionment. That's when certain residents have more political power than their numbers would suggest. And we could point to almost any state in the nation by the mid-20th century. Virtually every state in the United States was malapportioned. This is historian Doug Smith. He says malapportionment emerged from the belief that rural voters somehow were just better than urban voters. That attitude was captured perfectly by a delegate to New York State's Constitutional Convention in 1894. I say without fear of contradiction that the average citizen in the rural district is superior intelligence, superior in morality, superior in self-government to the average citizen in the great cities. We could certainly see this as a extreme manifestation of it, but that was a, a mindset or an attitude that was quite prevalent in many citizens of rural and small-town America who saw the, the cities growing rapidly. It's immigration, people of uh, darker skin colors, different religions are flooding the United States. Corporations are, are growing by leaps and bounds. Factories, it's a whole different way of life. And on many different levels, it, it can be unsettling. Smith says even though malapportionment violated the principle of one person, one vote, it was actually perfectly legal. The Constitution only requires that representation in the House of Representatives be based upon the census. But the Constitution doesn't specifically say anything about state legislatures. So in California, for instance, where I live, you had a state Senate, uh, which was set up in such a way that residents of Los Angeles County, 6 million people had one state senator, and re 14,000 residents of three rural counties up in the eastern side of the Sierra Mountains also had one state senator. So literally, if you were a voter in, in the rural eastern Sierra, you would have essentially 450 times the amount of political power as a resident of Los Angeles County in voting for the state Senate. Let me ask you, Doug. You know we're talking today about the urban-rural divide. Is one of the reasons that this notion that rural people are good people and honest people prevailed for so long, the fact that they had a louder voice in pretty prominent places like state legislators? Well, I think that for a long time, they had the power because they had the numbers. It was a rural country. It was a rural country, and—, and you know, we, we often talk about how it's the 1920 census that showed for the first time that a majority of Americans lived in urban areas. But at the time, you know, urban area, and that was defined as 2,500 people or more. I don't think a lot of us today would think of a, a community of three <laughs> or 5,000 people as urban. You know, the point being that for a long time, they did have the numbers and they did have the political power. And as, you know, as a, as a political historian, 
to me, at the end of the day, what malapportionment really is about is about political power. And it's about maintaining it, holding on to it, doing everything you can to try to, to maximize it. Were there other interests that came to support malapportionment? Well, I think certainly over time, business groups, chambers of commerce, manufacturing associations, all of those sorts of folks very much supported malapportionment insofar as it left control of the legislature in rural and small town folks who were seen as being more conservative on issues um, such as, you know, labor laws, taxation, et cetera, et cetera. So even though those businesses largely were located in urban areas. Absolutely. They wanted a pliant, rural-dominated legislature. Absolutely. What are some examples of the consequences of malapportionment? So if you think about for a minute, the states that were most malapportioned, you essentially were in a, created a situation where a minority of, of residents, as few in some cases as, as 12 to 20 percent, could actually control the majority of a legislative body. And so when you have that sort of form of minority control, it means that you can essentially veto almost any uh, measure put forward before the legislature. So, for instance, in Michigan, there was constant efforts at sort of uh, laws that would be seen as more favorable to workers, labor law, that business interests fought, or fair housing So these laws. would be laws, for instance, on safety regulation. Safety, workplace. Or overtime, minimum wage, Minimum perhaps. wage. I mean, literally anything, any issue that comes before a state legislature or before the House of Representatives in the case of Congress is affected. Uh, in California, there's issues of, you know, water rights and whatnot that are that are affected. And in, in we haven't talked at all about the role that that malapportionment plays in the perpetuation of segregation in Jim Crow, but certainly, you know, in, in Virginia, when Virginia passed its massive resistance laws. Massive resistance to uh, ensure that the schools were not integrated. Correct. Um, so when those laws were, were passed, you know, the, it's the rural areas of Virginia that were most conservative, most committed to maintaining segregation, that were overrepresented in Richmond as opposed to, you know, members of the legislature from Norfolk and Hampton Roads or Northern Virginia who were underrepresented. Doug, I have a funny feeling the courts are going to break this logjam. Absolutely. And it, the issue really does begin to metastasize almost in the, in the post-World War II period as urban areas continue to grow by leaps and bounds and Urban officials uh, become increasingly frustrated with the, you know, the inability to, to get adequate funding from the state legislature, whether it's for education or for roads or et cetera, et cetera. In November of 1960, the Supreme Court agrees to hear a case of Baker v. Carr, which comes out of Tennessee. The court was divided four to four. Potter Stewart, who was one of the newer justices, couldn't make up his mind and asked for it to be put over for re-argument. It was re-argued in October of 1961. It ultimately was a six to two decision, but Baker v. Carr only went so far as to say that the federal courts may consider whether or not malapportionment violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. It did not set a standard. It did not address the specifics, but it did open the floodgates to a raft of lawsuits. And then finally, two years later, in June of 1964, the, the court announced its decision and in, in the principle of one person, one vote must govern apportionment of all state legislative bodies. Yeah. Doug, I could read about malapportionment all day, but, you know, most people would say this is, you know, boring. Did, did people <laughs> actually care about this? Oh, absolutely. And when the Supreme Court handed down its decisions in June of 1964 requiring 
population equality in both branches of the legislature. This was headlines in every newspaper, every news show, and it remained in the national consciousness for five years as states did begin to reapportion under court order. And eventually, by the, by the late 1960s, uh, virtually every legislative body in the United States was based on equal population. And does malapportionment still exist? Literal malapportionment in terms of the way it existed prior does not. One thing that has happened uh, in the 50 years since is that legislative bodies within a state or congressional districts within a state do have the same or almost the same number of people, you know, the same number as you can reasonably draw. No doubt, though, gerrymandering is linked. The New York Times in 1965 wrote this editorial where they referred to the twin evils of malapportionment and gerrymandering. And, and one of the things I like to point out is that at the time, in the late 50s, 60s, you know, the, the lawyers for plaintiffs and the Supreme Court, they weren't naive about gerrymandering. They understood that gerrymandering was an issue. But malapportionment was seen as being the far greater obstacle to democratic government. So once malapportionment is taken care of, then gerrymandering, of course, which had been around for a long time, becomes ever more important. So, you know, you, now you have to draw districts that don't make any sense in order to get the result that you want. Whereas before, you could just lump 10,000 people into one district and 100,000 into another. You didn't have to draw funny shapes. Right. When the New York Times discussed the twin evils of malapportionment and gerrymandering, should they really have talked about triplets with the third child being the Electoral College? Well, that's a great question and obviously one that is especially prevalent today. The New York Times did not, but just a couple years before that, and I think in January of 1961, uh, Edward R. Morrow on CBS did a, a, an hour-long special called The Election Day Illusions. They spent 30 minutes talking about malapportionment and 30 minutes talking about the Electoral College. Certainly, there was a sense wow. that you know these were two entities which stood in the way of true democracy. Now, of course, the one place, and this is an important one, where the Electoral College is different from malapportionment or gerrymandering is that the Electoral College is specifically written into the Constitution. And no matter how you feel about it, you can't yes. get around the fact that that is very clear. Doug, you've told such a compelling story, but could you step back and just explain to us what the greater significance of these legal cases is? You know, Earl Warren always, at the end of his very distinguished career, Chief Justice, Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren, who presided over the court from 1953 to 1969, he always said that the, the reapportionment decisions were the most important of his career. Most people expected him to say Brown versus Board of Education. And he said, no, even more than Brown, even more than any of the of the other major cases that they handed out, the reapportionment cases were the most important because at their root, they addressed fundamental issues of democracy. Who is going to participate in our democracy? How much is each person's vote going to count? Right. How many, does my vote count once and yours count 10 times? At its most fundamental basic level, malapportionment and correcting malapportionment was about asserting a principle of majority rule in which every person has an equal vote. Doug, thanks for joining us on Backstory today. My pleasure. Doug Smith is the author of On Democracy's Doorstep, the inside story of how the Supreme Court brought one person, one vote to the United States. 